Okay, the uh, little MTP client down there tells me that uh, it's time I kicked off. So, uh, hi folks, I'm Dave. Um, been at AWS for just a shade over three years now, um, helping uh, customers with their security and compliance requirements. Um, been doing security one way or another for a couple of decades longer than that. We have got quite a bit to be getting on with today. So, um, this is, whoops. So um, I'm going to be going at uh, a bit of a rate. Hope, um, hope you're okay with that. Um, and uh, in terms of where this session actually sits, we've uh, managed to get ourselves almost a little mini track on uh, multi-account um, topics here at reInvent this year. So uh, I'm sat there squarely in the middle. Uh, when it comes to questions and answers, um, I'm going to hopefully be able to take a few after the session, but uh, I would ask you also to uh, look in your calendars on Thursday and see if you can attend one of the SID 308 sessions right at the end. That's a chalk talk session that all of us presenters from this mini track are doing where hopefully we're going to be able to um, take your detailed questions and actually illustrate them, scribble on whiteboards and uh, well, you get the idea. So this wouldn't really be a compliance session if I didn't talk a little bit about standards. So I look at compliance from the point of view of um, a customer needing to deal with controls that address someone else's threat model whether that's an auditor, a regulator, someone who they need to actually meet standards of. There's normally a very large overlap between compliance and security, but uh, it's normally not complete since the regulator or whoever has their risk appetite and the customer's is going to be a slight bit different. So what I normally find is certainly for large enterprise customers, they tend to adopt something like ISO 27001. Whoops in order to um, actually take the standards they need to meet from a regulatory perspective and then build upon them and then sometimes add their own controls as well. Um, from the point of view of external standards that AWS gets audited against, there's a fair few of them. Um, and this slide, uh, for once, isn't actually already out of date at reInvent. And uh, in terms of uh, getting details of uh, audit reports for uh, some of those standards, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the Artifact service. Who here is using Artifact? Quite a few. Um, still, um, still a few who aren't. Worth a look. There's a lot of good stuff, um, particularly in the SOC reports, I find, for um, actually giving information uh, as assessed by a third-party auditor regarding how we go about running stuff. Also, um, there are standards in there that even if they're not necessarily immediately relevant to you, uh, still have information in there that you may find useful. So, for example, the PCI DSS audit standard has a piece in it about um, how we go about dealing with um, forensic investigations in the event of you needing to do one. Um, moving on, um, while we get our services assessed against all these different external standards, if you've been doing compliance for any length of time, you'll know full well that if you take compliant thing A and compliant thing B and plug the two together, what comes out at the end isn't necessarily going to be a compliant thing. So it is perfectly possible to build wildly non-compliant things out of compliant parts. And we've released, uh, along with uh, some external people, such as the nice people at the Center for Internet Security, a bunch of assets which uh, hopefully help you work through the process to build an environment that will enable you to get a nice smooth ride with your auditor at the end of it. 
Um, these are actually all predicated currently on single account environments. So particularly in the context of logging, we're hoping to look at, look at extending them and refreshing them a bit in the light of certain new things that we've launched this year, such as organizations, which make things easier to deal with from a multi-account perspective. So onto multi-account environments. Hopefully some of you have been to Sam, Sam Elmalak's session that was an earlier one in the list. Who went to see Sam earlier today? Not many, well, okay. Well, we have actually, um, the, these sessions today are extra ones that we bolted on because of uh, oversubscription and the ones that we're doing early, but earlier. But uh, this essentially is the high level view of, multi, of a multi-account architecture as we currently have it um, proposed as a reference model. So you have your organization master account under which you have specific further accounts that support the organization infrastructure from the point of view of internal audit, logging, potentially a direct connect account so that your, that your network team can control, a shared services account containing things like your directory services that you can then um, do, cross, do um, VPC peering with to your resource accounts, which are all on the right-hand side in terms of your production environment, your dev and test environments, all the environments that you want to keep isolated from each other, um, both so that um, people can work in them autonomously, um, semi-independently from the main security organization, but also so that any issues that go wrong in an account in terms of people writing bugs, having, th having, uh, th having things blow up on them, aren't going to affect any mission-critical environments outside that context. We also now have CloudFormation stack sets, which essentially gives you cross-account CloudFormation. It enables you to um, very easily, uh, when you either provision a new account or have an existing account that you want to make a existing set of accounts you want to make changes to, you can actually use these and a, set, and a list of the account IDs to go deploying changes across a whole bunch of accounts at once. So if we break that out a little bit further into um, some of the things that go in these accounts, First of all, this shows you that uh, unlike Sam, I'm not a graphic designer by any stretch of the imagination, um, but there are certain things that uh, hide in plain sight in this. So if we consider our resource accounts again in the middle of the right-hand side, the ones that are sitting there with KMS and IAM and CloudHSM in, you actually do want to have KMS located within each resource account rather than potentially putting that in a shared services account. It's something we experimented with, and we found that if you have lots and lots of accounts, I mean, thinking of the largest customer I deal with who has the most AWS accounts, they're running somewhere in excess of 20,000 of them. They actually have one for each individual developer. Um, if you were to be doing, if you were to, to have a lot of stuff going on in an individual account, particularly pertaining to um, S3 crypto with KMS and so forth, if you're doing cross-account referencing of all your keys for that, you could actually hit service limits. We uh, managed to uh, accidentally DOS ourselves when we were building our, our, our reference environment for this. Um, now that we've got the uh, new generation Cloud HSM, of course, Cloud HSMs aren't the uh, rare and pricey commodity that they used to be, so it's actually, um, again, far easier to just go putting those in the individual resource accounts for those accounts that are going to use them. Also, another thing that we've got in here, which uh, doesn't actually come out in the previous slide, is we have not one identity provider in the environment, but two. 
So looking at identity federation considerations, there's a lot of regulation and legislation out there that uh, pays particular attention to personally identifiable information at the moment. And one of the big advantages of doing IAM federation is that it enables you to drain that personally identifiable information out of IAM. So if when you do your federating, you actually just federate on a group-to-group -group basis, so what you're actually making IAM aware of is essentially doing mappings between IAM groups and O equals and OU equals, DC equals, um, in, a, in an LDAP distinguished name, unless you're running a uh, particularly weird schema, that's not going to have any personally identifiable information in it. Um, my friend and colleague, Denis Batalov, um, the clue's in the name, he has Russian heritage, uh, wrote a blog post a couple of years ago about in-country storage of personal data. The, um, the actual blog post doesn't mention the context of Russian data privacy law, but uh, you might be unsurprised to realize that was one of the things that inspired it. Also, when actually doing federation to lots of accounts, we normally see two models in operation. People either federate directly from um, an identity provider into an AWS account, or they go via a separate jump account. That, um, so you just have one account federating to your IDP, and then your users connect into that, assume their roles, and then do cross-account role assumption in order to do whatever work they need to do with privilege in the accounts they need to do the work in. We had a long think about this when we were actually um, coming up with this architecture, and we found that as you start scaling out into large numbers of accounts, certainly beyond a dozen, um, you're probably going to start hitting some interesting complexities in the IAM policy that you need to put in your jump account. So if you don't really have an upper bound in place in terms of the plan of the number of accounts you're going to have, it actually makes more sense to do direct federation IDP to AWS account for each AWS account from the outset. So, um, whoops, where are we? So direct federation scales better. In terms of what's in your IDP, another thing I've come across when talking with customers is that um, internal security teams don't necessarily, they're not necessarily comfortable about having the entire corporate directory structure exposed even via appropriate um, proxying and protocol conversion mechanisms and then doing the SAML2 federation to, across the internet at large. So a very common thing to do to uh, allay, some of their, uh, allay some of their issues is to have a secondary IDP configured to do selective one-way replication of the specific groups that are going to be using the AWS APIs and then federate that. Obviously, when it comes to federation in general, it's um, pretty much a no-brainer thing to want to do if you want to keep um, everything straight and consistent in the face of movers, leavers, joiners events when you actually start getting to multi-account environments, and especially massively multi-account environments, there really is no argument to do anything other than federation. In terms of why you actually want to go running multi-account environments in the first place, this really comes down to one of the fundamental tenets of, uh, of um, compliance, which is the magics in the scoping. Um, anyone here actually um, needed to uh, sign our HIPAA um, business associate agreement? Who here is running 
regulated healthcare workloads, a couple of you. So you already know that when you actually sign the BAA, one of the things you have to do is nominate an account as being an account that contains personal health information as regulated by HIPAA. In any case, when you, um, for whatever um, external standard, if you um, have a discussion with an auditor, if there's one thing that's going to make an auditor nervous, it's not having a hard and clearly defined scope boundary between what is subject to their compliance requirements and what isn't. Um, VPCs are great for this up to a point, and um, they get used a lot, um, particularly in uh, PCI environments. But true story, I was um, having a session a few months back with a customer, and they had been having their PCI audit done um, by their QSA. And this QSA was a particularly um, rigorous and diligent kind of chap, and he asked a really interesting question. So he said, so I've got these EC2 instances, pro well, you've got these EC2 instances processing credit card data. Now, let's say these instances were somehow persuaded to misbehave, so they got hacked. What if, how can you show me that you've got adequate controls so that if these hacked instances are abused in order to try and get sensitive data out of them and into something like the logging system, because these boxes were also running the uh, agent for... Um, for CloudWatch logs, how can you show me that you've got additional controls in place to ensure that this data can't escape your PCI-scoped environment by other means? And the customer went, hum, okay. Um, they had a chat with me about it. In the end, as a uh, temporary measure, they did some work with uh, SE Linux profiles in order to um, build mandatory access control around the ability to uh, push data into the uh, logging system. But we both figured that longer term, there was probably a better way to do it, and that's something I'm going to get onto in a little bit. When you go creating new accounts, um, particularly if you, well, if you do this with organizations, you can actually when you do this, you get a privileged uh, role in the new account at creation time. Um, it always has a consistent form, so you can actually do automated account baselining before you actually let any users loose in it. And um, we do recommend that you um, go deleting the uh, role when you've done it. You can actually use this to set federation up while you're at it. And one of the things that you could potentially use to uh, do that baselining is the um, version of the uh, CIS found, um, AWS CIS Foundations benchmark that has been released as a CloudFormation template and is up there in our AWS Labs account on GitHub. So let's get on to the subject of cross-account logging and filtering, as mentioned earlier in the context of uh, this, this PCI-compliant organization. Cross-account logging is something that you want to do anyway. You want to have all your logs from all your accounts coming into one place so that you just have one place to point your, one source of data to uh, point your analytics tools at. But why, what else do you need to do with that? Filtering is getting onto people's radar now as something they need to do, not only because of the context as of our PCI-compliant organization that uh, needed extra controls to ensure that there was no credit card data, for example, passing through the logging system. But also, when you start looking at things like regional legislation that um, 
has issues about personally identifiable information passing beyond geographical boundaries, when you're actually running a global AWS deployment, you may have your central logging bucket in one region for your global environment, and you need to actually pass your logs out of the region that, that, your, inf that your infrastructure that's generating those logs is operating in, cross national borders, and into your bucket. That might not sit well with some people. So this is where you actually need to do some filtering. Um, you can also actually um, go keeping unfiltered copies of your logs um, in region. You may need to delete them after a certain time in order to meet compliance requirements. That's something that we can do. But this is where also you need to think about if we're producing a reasonably complex uh, log generating, well, log management and filtering system in an account, how do we stop the entity that potentially has privilege in that account messing with it, breaking it, doing things with it they shouldn't? And for that, this is where I'm going to also show you some fun things that you can do with organization service control policies. But onto the actual cross-account logging and filtering. If we've got CloudTrail and Config doing their usual thing and dropping their logs into an, into an S3 bucket, we can also have EC2 instances and Lambda functions and other things um, sending logs to CloudWatch, which can then potentially be plucked off that stream and stuck in the S3 bucket. Um, you may also, as I'll get on to later, want to actually take your CloudWatch events and have a Lambda function trigger off those. Um, obviously, you don't want to try triggering multiple Lambda functions off of the same CloudWatch event, so you may need to actually um, stick a step function in there to break things out. And then we now wind up with all our logs in this S3 bucket. Um, while CloudTrail can actually do native cross-account replication, this is the, the, the situation that I've just mentioned is one of the reasons why it's not something we really recommend anymore. To actually get your logs cross-account and potentially cross-region, have another Lambda function that triggers off your S3 bucket and then goes and pushes into your logging bucket in its separate logging account wherever it may be. You can if you want to, if you decide that you need to have um, filtered, um, redacted copy of your logs locally, if you're doing any local log analytics in, in, in that particular account, you may want to break things out so that your log bucket triggers a Lambda function that just does some redaction before putting redacted copy in a separate log bucket and then having another Lambda function that does the cross-account shipping. In terms of redaction, um, this actually is what the uh, Lambda function that we've uh, put together does. Um, it just actually takes data that um, is considered sensitive according to your own particular requirements and replaces it with asterisks. So this would satisfy the requirements of uh, that particular uh, rigorous, rig rigorous QSA. And hopefully, we're going to be um, getting some example code for this Lambda function up on our AWS Labs account soon. Um, it doesn't need that many um, IAM role actions. And another thing that comes up is, um, as mentioned, people don't want data to go escaping a particular region um, for um, reasons of local legislation. So another thing that comes up regularly is, how can I stop admins or employees or other people um, standing up environments outside the regions I want them to, uh, I want them to deploy into. And there's a few things you can do here. Things vary a little bit 
by region. Um, we can do it for any service that actually has a region in its arm, um, plus S3 and a couple of others. And um, how we go about doing that, S3 is a little bit special. It has its own way of doing this. And the way to do it is to use the S3 location constraint condition. So here we've got a policy that essentially says, you're not standing up any buckets anywhere other than Dublin. For EC2, and when I actually tested this, it also happened to catch RDS just by, um, just by good fortune. Um, EC2 has its own slightly different way of doing this using the um, EC2 region condition. And up until quite recently, just a couple of months ago, um, this, this um, EC2 region condition was only honored by a subset of um, EC2 actions, probably about half of them. Um, and it sort of silently got updated, and I looked at the documentation just when I was writing this presentation, and now it actually covers all of them. So that's a uh, nice piece of news that um, is a bit under the radar. For other services, again, if you've got something that has um, a region designator in its arm, then you can just actually um, do a little bit of wild carding in order to explicitly deny actions for um, the root of the ARN that contains the region information. Um, obviously, in this case, I'm doing denies all the way because um, we don't want to actually have in the complexity of our IAM policy or, uh, and SCP as they may evolve, we don't want to actually accidentally have an allow that causes this to happen. And of course, with IAM and organizations, when you put them together, it's still the case that any individual deny trumps any number of allows. Also, and uh, again, just to prove that uh, not all innovation happens at AWS, I was um, reading um, one of the uh, email newsletters that I get every week, and it pointed to this nice little script um, here on GitHub. It's just CloudFormation template, and what it does is it deploys a Lambda function that goes and looks at CloudTrail and goes and alarms when it sees any references to regions other than the one you actually set. So this is a nice way to have um, defense in depth so that if, any of your, if anything gets through your protective controls, you still have monitoring capability. Just a nice little simple script. So I did also have on my, on my diagram here, if you see in the middle near the top, I have a separate little account for the internal audit team. These guys are going to need to look at all the information in my logging bucket. Um, also, they're probably going to want to look in my billing bucket. And they're going to want to have read-only roles into Let's face it, everything. Um, there's a managed IAM role for that, so you can just reuse the actions from it. But you can actually extend this. So we're already doing cross-account access for our internal audit team. Nothing stops us doing this for our external audit team as well, since obviously when your auditors come on site, they wind up talking to your staff, reading your documentation, examining the disposition of your um, technical assets and so forth. It can be a little disruptive to business. If they're able to actually do some of that um, technical assessment before they come on site as pre-work, then an audit becomes a, an easier process to deal with. 
And if they're actually geared up to do it, you can use the same principles and the same permissions if you're in a regulated industry to give the same read-only access to all your log data to your regulator. There's some people that we know in uh, that side of the world. We've had a chat with them about it. They have uh, made some, they're, they're interested, put it that way. So on to what you can actually do in terms of um, event detection and auto response in a multi-account environment. Who here was at reInvent last year or went poking through YouTube like you do and came across a session from Brian Wagner and Beetle from last year? Just one or two, that's interesting. Okay, so I will actually talk through this in a bit of depth. What we're looking at here is tracking and dealing with events that are more fine-grained than I am an organization's really filter on at the moment in, term, in, in terms of um, things that uh, could cause security issues. So on, from the left, some staff member does something to your AWS account, that gets logged in CloudTrail, it lands in an S3 bucket, it similarly goes um, triggering CloudWatch events, which can fork a Lambda function, which can then act in order to alert on the issue if it's not able to deal with it itself or potentially actually act to revert the issue back to uh, something that you're happier with policy-wise. We actually built CloudWatch events particularly for this kind of purpose. Um, it's the fastest responding from the point of view of lowest latency um, AWS um, logging and, and uh, log analysis capability. Um, you're looking at uh, timing probably in the, in the milliseconds to seconds range as opposed to something like minutes for CloudTrail. The nice people at Capital One also took this architecture and uh, built their own tooling out of it. Um, people here come across Cloud Custodian? Anyone using it? Just a few. Well, if you want to um, go mining um, the open source world for useful Lambda responder functions, this is a great place to start, or indeed you can take the whole stack and deploy it yourselves. The whole thing got uh, made available for free, hence, uh, hence up on GitHub. Um, in terms of what a CloudWatch event actually looks like when you parse the thing out, the interesting information comes down at the bottom. So in there you've got um, details of what the action was, um, what region and what account it was executed on, who did it, what credentials they did it with, and even at the bottom, as you can see with the invoked by, it happened on the console. So uh, Bob, our intern, tried stopping CloudTrail logging. Obviously, you can just parse this out in a Lambda function and do something about it, and here's a nice example of that, showing how you can deal with the issue where Bob or someone like him accidentally goes standing up an EC2 instance that perhaps he shouldn't. So we've got this AMI, we're standing, up, we're standing it up on a particular subnet with a particular security group. This gets noticed by CloudWatch events, which generates as a log record. Obviously, it's pending because the instance is still on its way up. That goes and calls a Lambda function, which then goes and looks in DynamoDB because this kind of policy isn't the kind of thing you want to go statically coding into a Lambda function to determine whether the combination of the AMI ID and the subnet ID and the security group ID is considered appropriate to policy. In this case, oh dear, it isn't. 
So we can actually then trigger another CloudWatch event, or we could actually do it all in one off the same Lambda function. It's uh, nice to split this for modularity because our recommendation with Lambda functions is that each function does just one thing. And so we wind up calling another event, which goes and calls another Lambda function, which runs with an appropriate IAM role that goes and kills that instance before it's even finished making its way up. Now, how do you do this in a multi-account world? Really, you've got two options, and which option works for you depends particularly on what your own policy requirements are in terms of things like separation of duty and how much autonomy you want um, people to have in their own accounts. So you've got two options. One is to put the whole, um, the whole of that environment in each account. There are reasons to do this and there are reasons not to do this. Similarly, you can actually split it across multiple accounts if you want to have your security team have the final say over what happens in a whole bunch of accounts. A thing that we introduced recently that allows you to do this, um, normally um, CloudWatch events just triggers Lambda functions in local accounts. There's now a facility in CloudWatch called the CloudWatch Events Bus. This allows you to, this allows you to have local events invoke remote action. So to show this diagrammatically, if we just look at option one, we've got our second to through nth account, and we're just cloning our environment into it. And again, um, CloudFormation stack sets can help you do this. Or if you want to have more central control and also probably less resource, you can actually do this to bring your Lambda functions both to um, detect and respond um, into a central account. If you have huge numbers of accounts involved, you may also want to actually start getting some Kinesis streams into this as well. But uh, that's something we're still working on. Now we get on to probably my favorite subject. Full disclosure, I spent a lot of time before I joined AWS uh, working at Sun Microsystems doing really wild and wacky things with trusted Solaris. So, Mandatory access control kind of worked its way into my brain and stuck there. Who here is using organizations? That's a good show of hands. I'm hoping that after, this, after the multi-account multi track that we're running here, it'll be pretty much everyone. So I think, I think they're really neat. Um, so, Create a bunch of accounts, apply them, group them into organizational units with, um, with organizations as it currently is, and then you can attach service control policies to either individual OUs or individual accounts. The way an OU works is it is for most but not quite all practical purposes an IAM policy, and you wind up essentially prefixing the IAM policy that runs in the account with the SCP. So the effective set of controls on, a, on any particular user in an IAM account is the concatenation of the SCP and the IAM policy that's local. You can do the usual whitelisting, blacklisting, and so forth, and the IAM policy's SCP aware. Now this is where the fun starts. SCPs to the account that you're actually applying them to, they're invisible, they're immutable, and they apply completely across the board. And that includes, for the first time, to the root user. 
So unlike classic Unix root, root in an account that has an SCP applied to it is no longer omnipotent. And this gets really interesting. It looks just like system policy in a mandatory access control system because no one in the account the SCP is applied to can see the policy or do anything about it. Um, if you're into mandatory access control, by the way, um, all the various Linux distros that, um, that, that are available in AWS have SE Linux support, and yes, that includes Amazon Linux these days as well. Um, also, if you prefer to do things in a more trusted Solaris-like way, for those of you who are uh, as old as me, um, there is also in the community marketplace uh, FreeBSD 10 and 11. Um, so any old BSD jockeys in the crowd, it's still there if you want to use it. Um, with organizations and SCPs, of course, you don't get things like Bell Lapadula dominance or packet labeling. Um, you, you'd still be looking at things like uh, the EC2 operating system level for doing things like that. Now, when most people think about applying an SCP, they think about applying it at account creation time, just in order to do things like disable services that you don't want people in that account using. That isn't the whole of it, though. So you can actually apply an SCP after the fact once you've gone and stood a bunch of assets up. So I've been thinking about some of the useful things you could do with this, and I've actually... Um, got a little set of example SCPs that I'm sharing with you as part of this presentation. So the normal syntax for an SCP is just to turn some service off. Um, the limitations on SCPs currently is that the only argument supported in the resource field is a star. Um, you can't actually do finer grain filtering yet, but sometimes a blunt instrument is actually the right thing to wield. And also, you don't actually have support for IAM conditions at this point in time. So just to give you some examples of what you can do, we saw earlier that Bob the intern turned CloudTrail off. He wouldn't be able to if this was applied to the account, even if Bob just happened to be root on it. Once you start looking at uh, other services, you can, do some, you can do very similar things. I realized uh, when I was talking to some of the guys just the, just the other day, actually, you probably want to take CloudWatch put dashboard out of this particular SCP. I do, my, um, I do my dashboarding further downstream, but if you're actually using CloudWatch's intrinsic dashboard capability, you'll probably want to pull the plug on that particular argument in there. If you want to stop VPC flow logs being disabled, that's a straightforward thing to do as well. Similarly, the config service, and now let's look at something a little more interesting. If you've got um, an S3 bucket and it's being, say, um, a public web server, if you've got that configured, here's how you can stop anyone disabling the bucket, deleting it, or changing the policy on it. If you go adding things like um, S3 put object and S3 delete object, to that list of actions, then you can make your bucket and its contents immutable as well. So hooray for completely immutable public web servers. Um, obviously, there are some, you, this, is, this is a particular policy that you may want to apply to your buckets that uh, have your logs in as well, for example. And another thing that you can do with this, I'm a bit of a Lambda fan, but one of the things that um, I was thinking when we were working on the um, logging architecture that I showed you earlier, 
is, depending on whoever's rooting that account, they could uh, potentially do something to disrupt the operation of that um, carefully built logging environment because, hey, they're root, etc. Not if you've got this SCP in place. Um, all, it's essentially, it essentially makes a Lambda function execute only. Um, obviously, this means that uh, one of the things that can't be done in that account is standing up or modifying or generally working on further Lambda functions, but it's, it's a balance of what you need to do. Um, there are environments, certainly in, certainly in your production workloads, where a policy like this could actually be really useful to apply. And it still allows you to do all the, all the things that you would want to do in terms of um, read access to um, the Lambda function, um, any variables that, or metadata that are associated with it, plus, of course, actually being able to invoke the thing. A further one that um, a lot of people um, are starting to uh, tell me they like is um, there's a particular set of customers, especially in public sector, who want to just use AWS as an extension to their regular on-premise data centers. So they don't want their VPCs connecting to the internet. That's how to stop them doing so. So thinking about, one of the things I actually want to do is um, go and do a bunch of further work regarding just looking down, the server, looking down the service list, looking at the IAM actions, and thinking what further useful things I can put in reference, IAM poly, reference SCPs to do things like um, enforce immutability on things. So if you want to um, have your region locking and enforce it, um, especially if you're doing IAM federation um, back to um, an on-premise IDP, so your IAM policies aren't changing significantly as you go adding and removing new and old users, um, you could actually still set up an IAM policy that has subtle things in there around region locking, and then just deny the, and then just use an SCP to deny the ability to change your IAM policies. So in terms of what to actually put in an SCP and what to put in IAM, SCPs are good at what they do. Um, there are still things they can't do, but um, you can combine the two in order to get effective policy enforcement. And the way I'd actually go about doing this from the point of view of an account creation lifecycle is I'd start by doing the brute force turning off of services that you don't want to actually have, you, have in use, put your baseline controls in, put your assets in, and then extend your SCP to include um, the details of what, you want, of what you want immutability to be. SCPs themselves, just like IAM policies, they have a size limit on them. It's 5K thereabouts. Um, so again, um, I wouldn't really think, actually, that you'll run into um, SCP size limits. A further thing that you can do is bearing in mind that an SCP can only be applied by an entity with appropriate action, action privileges in the organization's master account, you can actually very easily um, build a two-person rule out of this. So if you decide that you have something that you need to change, but an SCP denies it, then whoever the owner of the asset in the account that's got the SCP applied to it 
and the entity that has the permission to apply and remove SCPs. They have to work together in order to temporarily disable the SCP, make the change, and then put it back. So this enables you to enforce multi-eyes if you work in the kind of world that actually needs this very easily. In terms of doing um, third-party, um, using third-party compliance tools in a multi-account environment, there are ones that work. So three of the most popular ones that I see, um, Sumo Logic is uh, rather liked in banks because of um, their front-end dashboard that um, addresses, um, uh, that reports in the context of PCI DSS controls. Um, Dome 9, I'm personally something of a fan of, the, the, uh, the, the Dome 9 Arc product, and um, Evident.io have been doing um, compliance in AWS for a very long time. They were probably the first to actually get to the market here. Um, in terms of um, how these actually work when you start looking at a multi-account environment, um, Dome 9 actually just uses cross-account roles. You set those up so that you create a, you create a role in your um, account that you want to bring into scope and then you um, give cross-account permissions to Dome 9's own environment in it. Um, the other two do very similar things. There are also tools that I have used where you wind up um, setting up a user in um, the account that you want to bring into scope, give it a set of permissions, and then you give your tool the access key and secret access key pair associated with that user. Um, we'd sooner, obviously, not have static keys flying around, so um, I'm having a chat with the appropriate people to see if we can get them onto a uh, cross-account role system. We'll see how it goes. Also, of course, I've already mentioned Cloud Custodian. Uh, this can also be deployed in a multi-account context. Thinking about the marketplace, the AWS marketplace, there's a whole bunch of security tools on there and in terms of those that can help you with your compliance requirements, it can be a um, big old map to navigate. Um, one thing worth looking at, if you haven't already, is there's a tool from Allgress called Marketplace Regulatory Product Mapping, and that actually takes all the security tools that are in the marketplace and maps them out on a wheel against a particular regulation regarding what um, each um, product is intrinsically certified against and what it can help you with. So that's actually a uh, product on the marketplace that's well worth looking at. So when it comes to um, how products will uh, actually work in a cross-account world, um, Ultimately, they do need permissions in order to at least read log data, which is how some of them work. Others use a cross-account role in order to um, go actually um, looking, look, pulling log records. Some even go polling things like um, describe APIs. And it's also worth knowing how the tools actually report and act and how they sensibly fit in in a multi-account world. If there's um, any vendors in the audience, by the way, um, it would be, if you're not doing it already, a nice tip if your product actually works, uh, works well in multi-account environment is to mention this in the product description. And um, while I haven't actually um, got my demo fully up and working yet, um, when it comes to visualizing what you've actually got in a multi-account environment, because they can be quite complex, 
Um, I've been having a big play with hyperglance recently, which is the only tool I've come across so far that will do visualization of account assets across a multi-account environment. I'm hoping that when uh, we actually have the SID uh, 308 session on, um, let me think, Thursday, um, I'm hoping I may actually have something to show. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see how I get on. In terms of resources on this, the uh, most important, the, the most pertinent to um, this particular session here is um, the bit at the bottom about CloudFormation stack sets and how to go about using them, and also the CloudWatch events bus. And uh, when it comes to um, other interesting security matters, these are the usual videos that I expect you've uh, probably come across before. And uh, that's essentially me.